you turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 4, we're going to focus on verses 24, sorry, 25 and 26 this morning, though I'm going to read the entire section which includes verse 3. Last time we saw that Cain and his line were all about addressing the temporal needs of life in this world, a world that the Bible says is passing away. The line of Cain were developing. They were inventing. They were creating things to make life better for them, easier for them, and for those who were with them. They were the authors of culture, of science, of technology, of the arts. We saw that. And these things are not evil in themselves. They can be used for good, including by believers for the glory of God. But beloved, none of these things can change a single heart, can make someone turn away from sin, can create love for God in a person or any real love for another human being. None of these things can do that. No matter how much culture, no matter how many arts, no matter how many great and awesome inventions, it doesn't make a single person turn away from evil or turn to God. Not at all. And that's ultimately the legacy of Cain and his line. Even when they're doing things that are beneficial to themselves and to others. They don't acknowledge God. They don't turn to Him. They don't confess their sins. They don't repent from them. They don't believe in the promise of salvation. They don't give the glory of God. They don't seek the everlasting good of a single person. Even when they bring temporal good to them. They don't do it at all. And they do nothing for the honor and for the glory of the God who created them for his honor and glory. The God whom we will all stand before in the next life. Beloved, the legacy of Cain is secularism, is humanism. Man and his needs and his desires and his pleasures and his aims and his hopes and his prosperity and his welfare and his ease... That's what they're interested in. And if God is to be acknowledged at all, that too has to be for the benefit of man. You know, religion has some psychological effect. The family that prays together stays together, so that's why we pray, so it helps us. We benefit from faith. We benefit from believing in God. We absolutely do. But we don't believe in God because of that. We need to confess that even if we wouldn't, we would still believe We would still serve. Martyrdom isn't possible unless God is worth more than everything in this world. And we have to believe that if we really trust in God. However, while Cain and his line, the line of Cain, the seed of the serpent, were busy trying to make this life better and forgetting God or ignoring God or mocking God or using God, there was another line. There was the line of the seed of the woman. And they were living another way of life. Not ignoring the developments in culture and inventions and and creations and arts that Cain and his line were. They they weren't ignoring them or shunning them. But they were consistently and continually looking for and waiting upon the Lord for everything. Not just for the life to come, 
They weren't just living for, you know, pie in the sky. In this life, they based their, their lives, their actions, their honor, their deeds on God and on his word and on serving and living for him. How did they do that? Well, that's what we're going to look at in our text this morning. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, again, we just ask you to help us to realize what life is about and give us the grace to live the life you created us to, that we would intentionally and sincerely live for your glory in this life every moment, every day. Help us to do so boldly and with all of our might. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. This is God's holy and perfect word. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. And he blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years. And he begot a son in his own likeness, after his image, and he named him Seth. May the Lord establish this word in our hearts this morning. First of all this morning, I want you to notice the beginning of worship. I want you to notice the beginning of worship. This text is about the worship of God and especially the regular public worship that is the distinctive mark of the people of God in this world. That's what we see in our text. This phrase to call upon the name of the Lord. You see it the second half of verse 26. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. That is a rich phrase in scripture and it means more than just literal prayer. You know, you call on God's name. God, hear me. It's more than prayer. It's beyond prayer. It includes all of our worship in all that we do and especially in our public worship as the people of God. You'll see this repeatedly throughout scripture. Genesis chapter 12 verse 8. And Abram moved from there to the mountains east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And listen. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Did you hear that? Abram goes and finds a place to dwell. The first thing he does, he builds an altar and he leads his whole house. He had 318 men servants because he armed them at one point to call upon the name of the Lord. Chapter 13, verse 4. He returned to the place of the altar, which he had made at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. This was what Abram did. 
the whole time he was sojourning. He builds altars. He calls on the name of the Lord. Genesis 21, 33. Then Abraham now planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. And there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abram taught his family, Abraham. So Isaac, when he becomes a man... Genesis 26, 25, he built an altar there and he called on the name of the Lord and he pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. He found a place to live. What's the first thing you do? You call upon the name of the Lord. I tell people if they are ask me, you know, we're thinking about moving. I got an offer for a job. Is it God's will? The first thing I ask them is, is there a faithful church that you can worship at? Can you go there and call on the name of the Lord? Because that's what Abram does. He doesn't go anywhere unless he can very first thing call upon the name of the Lord. Now that doesn't prove that it's God's will that you move, but that has to be there in order for you to continue to asking the question. All right. And so that's what we saw. That's what we saw in our scripture reading, right? Did you notice it at the end of the second paragraph? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Obviously, that's more than prayer because many pagans and unbelievers have prayed. And it's more than just merely going through the motions of outward worship because many people come to worship services and there are services all around the world, both faithful churches and heretical churches and false religions. And they go and they worship. But you have to actually truly, sincerely call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And that's what we saw in our call to worship. Did you notice that? That we are to call upon his name, make his deeds known among the people. Right away we see calling upon his name means exalting God, adoring God, lifting up God, honoring God, declaring his deeds among the people. In fact, when Paul wants to write to the Corinthians, the very first thing he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, after introducing himself, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, listen, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. You hear that? Paul says that saints are those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord. We call upon his name. We call upon his name here publicly in worship. And we should call upon his name in all of our lives, in all that we're doing, acknowledging him, declaring his deeds, making them known, believing in him. Do you see how calling upon his name includes all of these things? In fact, calling upon the name of the Lord is what makes the believer the believer. He doesn't just... Say he has faith. He actively lives it out by calling on the name of the Lord. That's what believers do. And unbelievers are those who do not call upon the name of the Lord. Jeremiah 10, 25. Pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you. Listen. And on the families who do not call on your name. That's what it means to be an unbeliever. Those who do not call on the name of the Lord. What does it mean, therefore, in our text? Notice it in verse 26 again, where it says, Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. What does it mean at this point? Adam, as we saw in verse 3, and that's why I included the first three verses of chapter 5, Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. 
See how the scripture is just giving us like bare, bare pictures. We saw at, or Cain and Abel last time. We saw Cain kill Abel. And then the very next thing that uh, Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and named him Seth. Now obviously in that 130 year period. Adam and Eve knew each other more than just once at the beginning and once at the end. They were intimate. They were a couple who believed in the Lord, loved one another. They would have had at least in that period dozens of other children. All right, That's where Cain's wife came from and Adam's wife and all the rest as we looked at. But 130 years go by and Seth is born. And then we saw, well, if you would read down to verse Six, Seth is actually 105 years old when Enosh is born. So again, in our verses, if we go in verse 25, Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son, named him Seth. And then as for Seth, verse 26, to him also a son was born. There's 105 years between 25 and 26. Because we know that because verse 6 says that Seth is actually 105 when Enosh is born. So scripture is just giving us some bare details to again trace out the line of the seed of the woman to show that God is faithful. He's going to bring the Messiah. So beloved, at the end of verse 26, 235 years have passed in the history of mankind. Mankind has been in existence for 235 years, according to scripture, by the time that Enosh is born. There would have been hundreds, there would have been thousands of people on the earth. We need to recognize that. And we've already seen what the line of Cain was doing. So is scripture saying that for the very first time, 235 years after they have been alive and living on the earth, that now people finally just start to worship God? Is that No, we know that's not the case. This isn't the first time anybody is acknowledging God, praying to God. We saw all the way back at the beginning of chapter 4, Cain and Abel, who were clearly taught by their parents to bring an offering to God at the end of the days. So there was a regular period of time where this is the time we go to worship God. That's what those, the, the, those phrases demand. So Cain and Abel are, are bringing offerings. The other children, when they got of age, they would have brought offerings. Adam and Eve are continuing to bring offerings. And that's part of worship. So they're acknowledging God. They're believing in God. Remember when Eve names her children, it's because she believed in the promise of God. I've gotten a man with the Lord. Adam, when he names Eve, it's because he believed that life would come through her. So he names her life. So they're living by faith. They're worshiping God. We saw all of this in the promise of God and how they respond to it. It's 235 years later. There is thousands of people on the earth I want, to, I want to notice one more place where Eve, when she names Seth in verse 25, notice it. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and she named him. Hebrews very clear. She named him Seth. And she says what? For God has appointed another seed instead of Abel whom Cain killed. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, but when Cain killed Abel, Eve lost two sons that day. She lost the one murdered. And the murderer is a murderer and a fugitive and he's gone. And yet she doesn't. Why, why God? She doesn't. How could God do this? How could God let this happen? She doesn't. Her faith doesn't weaken according to the way in which she has Seth here. And I believe it was shortly after. This would have been her first child after the death of Abel. Because she names him. 
with that thought in her head. Notice how she says, God has appointed another seat for me. If anything, beloved, her faith is stronger now. She doesn't just say, I've gotten a man with the Lord, which was a statement of faith. Now she uses the specific word that God promised in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman. She says, I have another seed. She's even more directly, more strongly focused on the promise of God when she names her son Seth. And I believe that God made it known to her that this is the one through whom the seed would come. Because Adam does the same thing in verse 3 of, of chapter 5. Do you see it? Adam, after when he lived 130 years, that, that tells us how old they are when Seth is born, which tells us how old they were when Cain and Abel would have done their things. Adam begot a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he, Hebrew is very clear, he named him Seth. She named him Seth, he named him Seth. Well, that's the way parents do it, right? You talk to each other, you agree together, this is the name of the child. Obviously, that's the case whenever we read somebody being named. The parents would have been okay with that. But what I want you to notice is by the time Enosh is born, 235 years. And what is going on? What what are they seeing in the line of Cain? Now, Cain's people are building cities. Cain's people are developing culture. They're inventing new creations. They're developing technology. They're making a name for themselves, naming cities after themselves, living for themselves. And this is when the godly line, seeing this, seeing this completely secularist, humanist line, doing everything for themselves, either by divine revelation or by spiritual conviction, they decide that they need to intentionally and publicly gather and live for God. So whether God gave them the discernment to see that this is needed or the conviction, it's what I think is is scripture saying here, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. It wasn't any more, well, this is what we do in our families, and this is how we teach our children. And when the end of days comes, you know, our sons will go when they have their houses, and they'll bring their offerings, and we'll continue to do this in the family. Now that the earth is populated enough that people need to gather together intentionally, not just families, publicly, neighbors, gathering together and having worship services. Because that's what Abram does when he builds his altars. He leads his whole house in calling upon the name of the Lord. So at this time, when the secular line is making a name for themselves, the godly line says, let's praise and call on God's name. Not our name, God's name. And so they begin to worship God. What did they have in their services? Well, we know they they had offerings. They had sacrifices. We know, by the way, that there were preachers. The Bible names two of them in the New Testament, pre-flood preachers. Enoch was a preacher of the Lord. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so they would have had, God would have in some way made known, called men to declare his word. And then they would respond with giving of themselves and sacrifices. And maybe they had singing or whatever, but we know they had his word and they brought offerings and they worshiped the Lord. They called upon his name. Adam and Eve lost two sons, and yet their lives are still lived around the promise of God. They believed, they lived for him, and they called on the name of the Lord. Secondly, I want you to notice the primacy of worship. I want you to notice the primacy of worship. What do we mean by worship? What is worship? 
What do we mean when we say we're coming together to worship? You know, in England, the word worship can be used as a title. You can say to a minister or to a judge or to a member of the royal family, your worship. Hello, your worship. Would you like some more gravy on your potatoes? (laughs) Well, yes, your worship. I would like that. Uh, What does it mean to call someone your worship? Well, the word worship comes from the word worthy. To be worthy uh, of this honor and this adoration. So you give this kind of respect, reverence, humanly speaking, right? When somebody's worthy of it. And we have it in in all sorts of human relationships. The fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother is that kind of reverence and respect. You know, it's a kind of worship, but it's not... We, we distinguish worship as something that can only be given to God. But they would have talked about that. You know, the same word, worship, is used when, when people would bow before the king. Because it just means to bow or to, or to kneel. Which tells us a little bit more about what worship is. When you worship, you humble yourself. You lower yourself to lift someone up. That's why children are commanded to honor their parents. They need to lift up their parents. They owe their parents because of their relationship. Paul commands us to honor the king. That we are to honor those who God himself has selected to, to rule in the state. The state is God's idea. Nations are God's idea. And so we are to honor them. Now, it doesn't mean we listen to everything they say when they violate our rights. Absolutely not. Paul didn't. He called upon Caesar. He stood up to the governor when the governor wanted him to do something that Paul knew was against his rights as a Roman. And we're allowed to do that. And... and Wives are called to respect or reverence their husband, another kind of honor. Again, worship with a little W. And husbands are called to give honor to their wives, another kind of worship. That husbands and wives are are supposed to honor one another, lift up one another, right? This is something that we do. We we lower ourselves and we, we exalt the other person because of the position that they have. And there's a sense in which we're to do this to everyone. In fact, Ephesians says that we are all to submit to one another. Paul says uh, in Colossians that we are to consider one another better than ourselves. That we do this in the church and then even outside the church, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, right? And if you see your neighbor needs something and if it costs you money, well, you're supposed to spend that to help them. If it's really and truly a need. And so in all these ways, we... We, we, we lower ourselves and we serve others. By the way, worship and serve is the same word in Hebrew and in Greek. That's why when we say we have a worship service, it's almost like saying worship, worship, or service, service. At least in Hebrew and Greek, that's the way it would be. But worship is to lower ourselves and to exalt another. And when we talk about worship proper, it's only given to God. We are only to worship the God who is worthy of worship. As rational, moral beings, and I'm including the angels with us, men and angels, we are only to worship God. God alone is the highest being. That we are to give him all honor and glory and praise. And when we worship God, we lower ourselves and we lift him up, which is why the idea that got popular in the 90s and really going all the way back to the 70s, 60s even, the idea of seeker-sensitive worship. Worship that's culturally relevant or something like that. Worship that says, what does man want? That's what we'll do. That's a contradiction. We're supposed to lower ourselves. We're supposed to lift God. How can we lower ourselves when we create the entire service based on what we want, 
to make ourselves like it more. Who are we worshiping? Ourselves or God? If we worship God, we're only going to do what he said. We will come into his presence with fear and trembling, right? Not in the kind of, oh, God's going to strike me dead. But God is so holy and so awesome and so lovely and so beautiful. I wouldn't dare to do anything in his presence except what he told me that he wants me to do. That's a humble posture, right? That's a, that's a posture that says he alone is my God. And we call that in the reform camp the regulative principle, right? We only do what God has commanded in worship. Because if we did the things that he hasn't forbidden, we could do just about anything. Because you can't forbid everything unless you have a book that's infinitely big. And so we only do what God commands, right? Now, we we distinguish between elements and circumstances. The elements of worship are what you see, what we do every week in this church. We do what we see. Scripture explicitly says we are to do in worship. We are to preach the word. That is said more strenuously than anything else in worship. That there must be a preached sermon. The fact that there can be church services, and even in the PCA, where they will not preach a sermon. To me, that's just insane. The very most stressed thing is preach the word. So when we come together, we have to preach a sermon. And we have to have scripture read. Scripture is read in the sermon. Jesus would go into the synagogue and what would he do? The scroll would be handed and he would read because this is what you do in worship. You read the word of God. It's God's word that's important. So God's word is preached. God's word is read. And we pray. Right? We pray to God. We make our requests known. And in our prayers, we first lift him up. We adore him. We say, Lord, you are awesome. You are glorious. You are beautiful. And we confess our own sins. Lord, we are sinners. We still fall short. We still rebel. We're not victims. Have mercy on us. Forgive us. And we thank him for his mercies and his grace. For all that he's doing, not just in the spiritual, but in the temporal. We thank him for the fact that we are in a nation where we can still worship him without persecution. We thank him that we're, our kids are, are healthy or whatever. We thank him for surgeries. And then, we, can, then we, 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 we supplicate. We ask him, right? Lord, help us to do this or help me to, to, to serve you more. I, I always try to emphasize, and I know Pastor Appleton does too, the spiritual, Right? Pray for that's, that's what you see in Scripture. Always, you know, that we may know the love of Christ, that we may know how deep his love is, that we may turn from our sins, that we may believe him more, that we would strive after him more. Yes, we pray for physical needs too, but first the spiritual, the eternal. And so we do these things out of worship. There are, there are circumstances of worship, right? Whether you're seated or standing, what time it is when we begin. Whether we sing this hymn or that hymn or whatever, circumstances, but the elements, right? We sing praises. Why? The Bible commands us to sing. Sing a new song to the Lord. Make a joyful noise. That's what some of us are able to do. And it needs to be sincere, too, right? Worship is by faith. We're trusting in Christ. Remember, Abel brings his offering by faith. It's not enough to just do the right things. You have to be trusting in Christ, but then you have to do it really and sincerely. If I'm trusting in Christ and I go to a worship service and the only thing I'm thinking about is, is watching the Steeler game afterwards or, or what I'm going to eat next or how so-and-so isn't paying attention the way he should be, if that's all I'm doing, I'm not worshiping God. right? I, I need to be focused on, on trying to do what's pleasing to him. 
So when the song is saying something about, I should be trying to mean that, right? And I should be trying to pray along with the pastor when he's praying, even though he goes way too long. And what's he talking about now? But trying to focus on it. And really, you know, what I'll do a lot of times, if I feel myself drifting, I'll just whisper, you know, silent whisper, but I'll just like say in my head the words immediately after the person praying is saying them, just to get me back on track. Because I know we all stray and we all, you know, wander in our minds. But just trying to do that. Focus on him. Don't think about work. Don't think about your job. Don't think about play. Don't think about whatever. I just want to focus on God. Intentionally doing that. That's worship, beloved. That's what we do when we worship God. Worship is not a feeling. It's not a feeling. And I am concerned that in much of the evangelical church, that is the understanding of worship that is given. They won't define it that way. But if you want to ask, well, what's worship? Or, you know, uh, what's the you know, worship part of the, ser- the, the service? When do you worship? Well, you worship in the beginning when you have that 30 minutes of singing. Right? That's the worship. Oh, we're worshiping now. We're singing. We have the music playing. That's worship. We're, we're in worship. And it's not even just the singing. It's the feeling that you get when you sing. I'm in these circles. I know exactly what they mean. Well, we're, we're in worship right now. Don't, don't you feel it? We're, we're worshiping. There's nothing wrong with lifting your hands, by the way. But this is what, you know, it's this emotional, active thing that comes upon you. And now you've entered into worship. Because you have this emotion that you're feeling, and the music really helps. It's got to, you know, you want that music playing. It's a certain kind of music, too. It can't be like, you know, very, um, a mighty fortress is our God. It's hard to get that feeling from that. It's kind of more reverent uh, music. It's got to be this kind of, you know, this music that, that moves you. I, I've seen it, in, I've gone to a lot of rock concerts, and I've seen it. Man, and people, you know, and the lighters, used to be the lighters, now it's the phones, you know. And, you, and I've, I've had that feeling. I had that feeling at Def Leppard and Van Halen and Bon Jovi and Motley Crue. I saw them all. I was there. And I've had that feeling in, in worship services. I've had that feeling where, wow, you don't, you don't want to stop. You want to keep, you get this feeling. Guys, that's not worship. That can accompany worship. And I would even say that you should have emotional response to the promises of God. That should be part of it. You should feel something when you hear Jesus died for you. But don't mistake that feeling as worship. Worship is your intentional conforming your heart, your mind, and your will to lift up God. You've got to do that with your reason first. That's got to be a decision. You've got to be doing that out of faith in God. You're worshiping God now, just as much as when you're singing. Do you believe that? A lot of people don't. This isn't the worship part. The worship part was when we were singing. This whole service is worship. It's no less now, if you're really trying to exalt God and listen and obey his word and conform yourself to his word, than when you're singing or than when you're praying or than when you're putting money in the offering plate. That, too, is an element of worship. We're commanded to do that. And you, when you do that, that's worship. When you do it from the heart, I want to give to God. That's what worship is. Worship is a deliberate exalting of God, humbling of ourselves by faith in Christ, doing what he said, and meaning it, wanting to see him exalted. From the call to worship until the benediction, I want to focus on God. I want to exalt him. I want to lift him up. And so thirdly, I want you to notice the object of worship. 
the object of worship. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. You know, a person's name is his reputation, right? You can have a good name. You can have a bad name. You can have your name dragged through the mud, you know, or whatever. You know what that means. It's well, what people think about you, your reputation. If you go to Salzburg, most of you know this. I'm not Ray in Salzburg. And I'm certainly not Pastor Michael in Salzburg. I'm Buster to my family, to my friends. I'm Buster. In fact, my dad would always call me Bus, my best friend Richie Bus, my sister Bus, you know, Buster. But I have another name, another nickname. I mentioned this in a sermon a long time ago, but among just a handful of guys, and, and I'm kind of like proud of this name, you know, because, you know, you, I did something to get it, as it were. Um, and so, like, uh, we were playing basketball one time in Salzburg, and we would always play basketball in the parking lot, which was right above our yard, the high school parking lot. And the parking lot had an up level, and then about a six-foot hill cement, and then a down level. And they had these, you know, culverts where you'd pull your cars up in front, and they were always dragged around because people would move them to sit on them and stuff. But we had this hoop that we would play half-court basketball, and sometimes we'd have, like, five teams, like, rotating in, and we would just... That ball was bouncing all night. I remember going to sleep and I just hear the boom, 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 boom of the basketball, you know, in the distance when I was a little kid. But as I was getting older and I'd play and I didn't like basketball. I really didn't. I liked football. That was what I really liked. But you had to play something and so, you know, you're playing. And, and, and I wasn't that good at it. I was the shortest kid really until my junior year. So late bloomer. But so I made up for in hustle what I didn't have in skill. And one time the ball was going out and there was, like I said, a whole bunch of guys were there. And I went diving to get the ball because we had touched it last to save it so that the other team you know doesn't get the ball it's a turnover and I throw it back in as I'm diving out of bounds but I'm diving over that cement hill and as I throw it I go even further you know because of the momentum and as soon as I hit the ground I look behind me to see if I saved it you know I wasn't even I wasn't feeling anything yet and they had all stopped playing I mean these guys were all like older and bigger than me I was still one of the littler kids and I remember one of the best guys had the ball like under his arm. And they were all just staring, you know. And it's like they thought I'd maybe killed myself, you know, diving <laughs> over the hill. And, and they saw me get up right away. And the one guy goes, look, it's the fall guy. <laughs> now, you younger kids don't have no idea why they would say that. There was a TV series in the 80s where it was about a stuntman. And it was called The Fall Guy. And he also collected bounties. But uh, you know, it's an 80s series. It doesn't have to make sense. But they, the, the show would always be around some great movie stunt that somehow would also catch the bad guy. And, um, and to this day, there are a handful of guys, when they see me, hey, fall guy, they'll call me, you know. And, and again, it was because of this crazy thing that I did and didn't get hurt. And that's the meaning behind a name, right? When you, when you do something and you get a name, what has God done for you? Think of the names of God. Jehovah Jireh. God, my provider. Jehovah Rapha. God is my healer. Right? The God of grace. The God who sees and knows. The God who created you. The God who right now is keeping your heart beating and causing your lungs to benefit through the oxygen and and all of your cells are working. And not only the physical things like creation and providence, but God himself 
has saved you and his spirit is in you and he's working life and faith and repentance in you and making you more bold for him and helping you to put off that sin and even increasing your own activity to work together with him in the sanctification process. God's doing these things. Don't you have a reason to exalt him? His name. He has a name. He's earned it. We should praise and exalt our God. We should love his name. In fact, scripture says not only call upon his name. If you read, do the, just a search on the name or name, we are commanded to love the name of the Lord, to believe on the name of the Lord, to trust in the Lord, to fear the name of the Lord. To, and it's always the name. Trust in the name of the Lord. Fear the name of the Lord. Hallow the name of the Lord. Praise, exalt, declare, proclaim the name of the Lord. In fact, we're commanded to walk in the name of the Lord, to pray in the name of the Lord, even to get up, to lie down, to go to sleep, to come and go. In the name of the Lord. In fact, Paul says in Colossians 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Do everything. There's a kind of worship with a lowercase w that all of life is supposed to be. All of life is supposed to be lived for the glory of God intentionally. Right? This is what, this is what the Protestant Reformation discovered, rediscovered in the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. That we are all to live for God. And we can do so directly, immediately. We don't believe that we have any priests. We don't need any priests. It's an insult to God if you would put someone between you and him. He's made a way. The veil's been torn in two. We're all equally priests. Your job is no less holy than Pastor Appleton or myself. If you're doing it to the Lord. This was, by the way, the original job satisfaction that Protestants could have in the Protestant work ethic. Why do they work so hard? Because whatever they do, they do to God. That ditch digger, he has job satisfaction because he's doing it to the Lord. This idea that we have to be doing this thing that somehow is the one thing that we love the most or we're not going to have satisfaction. You do it to the Lord. When I was working at the school as a guy picking up garbage on on, uh, work release from prison... I did it to the Lord. And I had joy. Even as these kids who used to look up to me as, you know, this guy who was kind of popular is now out cleaning garbage when he's allowed out of jail. And it didn't bother me because I, I was serving God and I was living for him. And we have to be able to do that. That's, that's worship, right? That we live for the Lord God in all that we do, in all that we say, in all that we think. And we can do this again directly because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want you to notice, fourthly, the glory and the blessing of worship. The glory and the blessing of worship. God doesn't need our worship. God is not benefited by our worship. We don't add anything to God. Cornelius Van Til used famously the full bucket analogy to describe that God's glory is a full bucket. You can't put any more in. You can't take any out either. That's because God's glory is infinite. It's infinite already. He doesn't need us to worship him. I like to remind people of this when sometimes, you know, our faith is mocked 
And our God is mocked. You know, what kind of a God makes all of you people to worship him? Is he on some cosmic ego trip that he needs you, you know, worshiping him? It's not for him. He doesn't get anything out of it. He's not more glorious because we worship him. He's not more pleased because we worship him. He's not in any way more satisfied, gloried, great, or anything else. In fact, our worship doesn't even deserve to be accepted by him. It can only be accepted because we come through the blood of Christ. He has to forgive the sin that's in our worship before he can even accept it. God doesn't, he doesn't create us because he needs us. You know, I saw, I saw it done like this in a TV show once where they were mocking Christians and, and they showed these two people and, and they said, oh, you know, you know, God's up in heaven like this and the one sits down on the chair and the other one starts to go, oh, you're so great, you're so holy, you're so awesome. And you know, about 10 seconds of this goes on and, the, and he finally goes, you know, I'm getting tired. Can I sit in the chair now? You know, as if like God is just one of us, you know, like a slob, like the song went. Beloved, if we could even for a moment glimpse the glory of our God, the majesty, the, the beauty the awesomeness, we would be overwhelmed. We would respond in absolute worship and adoration because we would see that he's worthy of it. We would see that we can't do enough for him. We can't give ourselves enough. Think of those 24 elders in in heaven. They're throwing their crowns at his feet because they see him as he is. Worthy to be worshipped. No, God doesn't make us so that we can give him this worship and that we can benefit him. He gives us the privilege. He gives us the honor, the blessing, the glory of worshipping him. When we worship God, we enter into his glory. Now, Adam and Eve and Seth and Enosh were not able to do it like we do. They had to have mediators and types and, and symbols and, 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 and things that, uh, you know, ceremonies and so forth. Priests and, and garments and clean and unclean. All that's done away with. Now that Jesus has come, the veil is torn. We're all priests. Every man, every woman, every child who believes directly enters into the presence. Nobody goes with you. You go and Christ dwells in you. You are a chosen generation, Peter wrote, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may, it's a privilege, that you may proclaim the praises, literally the moral excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Beloved, you know, today is Palm Sunday. The day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to be crucified on Friday, five days later. And as he's riding in and he gets into the city, the priests and the scribes and the elders, they hear the people yelling, Hosanna to the king, Hosanna in the highest, son of David. They're proclaiming him, they're worshiping him, and they're indignant, and they look at Jesus, they get up to him, and they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And you remember what Jesus said on that occasion? I tell you the truth, if these were were silent, the rocks would cry out. 
Because somebody's going to praise his name. I think it was Petra who wrote that song. Somebody's going to praise his name. Somebody's going to call him Lord. It'll either be you or me. Or it's going to be a rock or a tree. But somebody, somewhere, is going to praise his name. He created us for worship. They're already worshiping him right outside of the garden. How much greater can we? And there will be a day when we will be in that glorious heavenly throne room with those elders, with the four living creatures. We will see his glory. We should see it now by faith. But we will see it by sight. And we will worship the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the privilege of worshiping you. Lord God, we confess that we are so slow to realize it. That by your spirit we are in your presence even now. That your majesty has been made known to us. That your deeds of salvation have been declared to us. That your spirit is at work in us. Help us to ascribe to you glory and honor and might and worthiness and praise and adoration. Because you are so worthy of all of our praise. And Lord God, there is nothing greater that we can do. There is nothing more dignified. There is no higher place for us as human beings than to be bowing down before you when you invite us into your worship and your glory and your praise. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.